Amen. Amen. Hey, man, it is. I'm about to preach to people. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hey, guys, before we start, let's give some love. Let's give some, yeah, okay. Let's give some love to our tech team, our digital team, has been holding down the fort for like six months. Man, how tough is it to be their gig? You know, they, they knew what was at stake, they owned it, and they made it happen. So we have been able to have been blessed with a live Sunday worship service at our home for the past six months. So praise God for that. Praise God for that. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a couple things, and you guys are going to repeat after me, okay? I'm going to say spread love, and you guys are going to say not fear. You guys get ready? Ready? Spread love. Spread love, not fear. All right. Hey, church, I got a good word for you today. I'm about to come and preach because I knew, I knew that today was a Sunday soft opening, and I just wanted to come and give you this message that God has put on my heart for months, and I've been trying to figure out when was the best time to preach it, and it just, it just, it just fell into place. So here we are. And I uh, thank you guys for coming back. Hey, give it up for our newlyweds coming back from the honeymoon. Yeah, Kat and John. Ow! Okay. I wish I was on vacation. Well, that, looked, that looked fun. All right. And we are in a series called God's Wounded Healer. Wounded Healer. Right? We're in a series called Wounded Healer. Okay. Uh, it's actually a very near and dear series to my heart because it is a series that calls God's people to be ministers to those around them. It is a series that reminds everyone that we are not just to kind of meander through our Christian life or meander through our life in general, but that our lives were made to be able to minister, to care, to love, and to bless other people. I know it might sound shocking to you, but the church is full of imperfect people. I know, crazy, right? And imperfect people are the very people that God uses because he takes them, he, he heals them, he transforms them by the power of his Holy Spirit, and he sends them out to become vessels of healing to those around us. And you know, TLC, our vision for our church, if you are new here, let me just drop our vision for our church for you guys. Our vision for our church is to love God, love people, and serve the world, right? We exist to minister to the lives of others. We value community here. We value the life of people. We value investing in lives of people. So if you are here at TLC, I want you to know one thing. If you're watching at home, I want you to know one thing, that here at this place, one of the things that we seek to do is to invest in your life, okay? And so we're going to pick up where Pastor Evan dropped off last time, okay? He dropped off at the idea where you are saved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is alive in you. The Spirit of God is the, thing, is the one that's transforming you. The Spirit of God is the one working in you, changing you. And the question I want to drop for you guys today is this. How then now do I become a vessel of healing for others? The question I want to ask you guys today is how do we now, being brought to life, by the Spirit of God, become a vessel of healing to other people. You guys ready for that? Yeah? It's a good question, right? Three things. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's get into this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. This is a letter that Paul writes to a church that has once hated him. This is the letter that Paul writes to a church that has once disowned him. 
And this is a, Paul, a letter that Paul writes to the church telling them, I still love you. I still want to minister to you. I still am for you. I am for you, not against you. And I'm going to tell you the heart of what it means to minister to people. Verses 1 and 2. This is what Paul is saying. Now then, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, it is the caring for people, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting, up, by setting forth the, truly, the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. How do we become a vessel of healing for those around us? You preach the truth, you live the truth. How do we become a vessel of healing for those around us? You are a person, you are a vessel that preaches the truth and lives the truth. Everyone at home say preach. All right? What Paul is saying is this. Paul is saying, my life is to preach the truth and to live the truth. I'm not going to sugarcoat this message. I don't make it palatable just for people to hear. I don't say things in public and do things opposite in private. I ain't shady like that. He's saying everything I do and everything I, sp I say displays all of God's glory and all of God's truth. You can see it for yourself. You can judge it for yourself. Listen to what I'm saying. Watch my life. How do we become vessels of healing for people? You got to preach the truth and live the truth. You know what that means? That means that as a person, you have to preach the truth in its entirety. In its entirety. You know, we, we got into the habit in our culture that we just kind of drop this bomb to God is love and that's it. Is that true? Of course it's true. But that's not its entirety, right? People are changed. People begin to recognize true healing when they hear the whole of God's truth, the whole of God's message, the whole of God's good news. People are never changed, never transformed by hearing just a tiny tidbit of it. It is the entirety of the message, which means what? It means that you got to preach about Sin. You got to preach about sin. The brokenness. And they're like, I don't like that, PTT. It's kind of offensive for people to hear. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what sin is. Because I think a lot of you guys just think like, oh, it's because I'm doing a bad thing. No, it's not what sin is. Sin is missing the mark. See, God has this amazing relationship with his people. God wants that relationship with his people. He is the perfect, he is the perfect being for this perfect relationship. And all of a sudden, he watches the ones whom he loves go chasing after other counterfeit gods. He watches all of these other, he watches all of his creation that he loves running after, it's, it's like this. It's like, it's like you know, when, when, you're, when you're dating someone, right, and you know that you're the best for them, and they break up with you, and they're dating some other dude or some other girl, and you're like, what? Who, what? Are you, are you what, Why? That guy has nothing on me. That girl got nothing on me. What, what is he thinking? What is she thinking? Right? Now multiply that by infinity. That's what God's saying. He's saying, look, I have this relationship that I want with you, and you go running off to something that's counterfeit, something that's less, something, that is for, something that's actually killing you because all you're doing is chasing after it. All you're, it's, it's good at first. It's fun at first. You enjoy it at first. But after a while, what happens? Are you more at peace? 
Do you find yourself more joyful or do you find yourself still chasing after it? Fill in the blank, whatever that counterfeit God is. It could be a relationship, it could be money, it could be your ambition, it could be your material blessings, it could be fill in the blank. As the more you chase after these things, the less joyful you end up feeling because what are you doing? You're still chasing. And God is saying, I'm the one who completes everything. You gotta preach the message in its entirety. There is, you are not, you are not the hero of the story. You are the villain of the story. You have chosen to reject the one love that is for you. You have chosen to reject the one person, the one being who was 100% for you and chase after other things. And you separate yourself. You got to preach this entirety. You guys follow me? You got to preach the truth. You got to live the truth. Preaching this entirety means you got to preach about what? You got to preach about the work of Jesus. You got to preach about the sacrifice of Jesus. You got to preach about the resurrection of Jesus because God will not leave you where you're at. He will not be satisfied of you running after other things. He will fight to get you back. And he brought his son to bring, to bring you home, church. You got to preach the truth. See, healing comes when you have the boldness and the audacity to preach the gospel. See, if you knew someone was walking off a cliff, it's not offensive to tell them, stop, don't do that. It's actually morally irreprehensible, irre irre what's the word? Irreprehensible irre not to, okay? Sorry, my grammar sucks, right? Oh, my vocabulary sucks, okay? It's morally wrong not to. If you see someone who is walking off a cliff, it is not offensive to say, please stop, don't do that, you're going to die. It's morally wrong if you don't. Most, most atheists, when they look at Christians, you know what they think? They think these Christians, if, they, if these Christians really believe there's a hell, and they really believe that there's a separation between God and man, and they don't tell me about it, these Christians are jerks. These Christians are jerks. If this is true, and they're not going out there telling me about this, these are the worst morally corrupt people on this earth. See, Paul is saying what? How do you become vessels of healing? You got to preach the truth in its entirety. You can't sugarcoat it. You can't make it palatable. You can't make it just acceptable. You got to let people know the truth, right? And it means this, church. It means that sometimes you got to bring your brother and sister in Christ who's struggling with life to come and tell them, hey, I know this is what you feel is right. I know that what you're thinking is right. But let's ask the question, what does God tell you? What does God say about this subject? What does God say about this matter? You got to preach the truth. You got to live the truth. What does God say about marriage? What does God say about gender, about sexuality, about family, about government? What does God say? It does not matter how you feel. If God is who he is, what does he say? I remember a while back, I had a friend of mine. She was telling me, hey, PT, man, you're a pastor. Let me, let me, let me drop a question for you. Not. I'm moving in with my boyfriend, right? I'm moving in with my boyfriend. It's, it's, I know that sounds kind of like a taboo thing nowadays, but look, I'm moving with my boyfriend. We're living together. We're sleeping together. We love each other. I think eventually we're going to get married, right? What's the, what's the harm in that? What's the harm in that? We're, we're, we're having a good time. There's nothing wrong. What is the harm in that? So my question to her was very simple. My question, I wasn't trying to, like, you know, make her feel dumb or anything. I was just asking her, who is Jesus to you? Because that's the real question. Because remember, 
Christian sexual ethics are given to believers, not to unbelievers, right? And so I asked her, hey, who is Jesus to you? And she said, Jesus is my God. He's my everything. And I said, no, now you're lying. Now you're lying. You see, because your God is your boy. Your God is your boy. Because your God says one thing about sexual ethics, and your boy says another thing about sexual ethics, and the question I'm asking you is, who are you listening to? Because whoever you're listening to, that's your God. Whoever you're submitting to, that's your God. I'd rather you tell me you were struggling with it. I'd rather you tell me that you recognize the conviction of sin in your heart, you're having a battle against this, you don't know what to do, and you're trying your, you're trying your best to say yes to God, but you're having a issue, and you're saying no. I'd rather you say that to me because if you tell me that, that means I, I can see and I know that the Spirit of God is alive and working and chipping away at your heart. And if the Word of God and the Spirit of God is alive and chipping away at your heart, that means that there is, there is repentance coming. That means that the repentance is coming. And if repentance is coming, the change is coming. And if change is coming, healing is coming. So you got to ask the question, what does God say? In his word, what, what, is, what does his word say? This, this book is not, is not ancient. This book is timeless. It's eternal. Therefore, it's relevant in every generation. The problems of sin back then is the problem of sin today. The problem of sex back then is the problem of sex today. Nothing's changed. Contrast to that story, there's another story of a sister of our church, same situation, living with her boyfriend, came up to me and asked, what do I do? And I asked her, well... Who is Jesus to you? So I, I want Jesus to be my Lord. I want him to be my God. I, I recognize that this is what he's saying. It's, it's a hard struggle for me. It's, it's difficult. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure if this is good. And, then I, and it's, just, it's just hard. And to that, I just prayed. I said, let me just pray for you. Let me just pray that the Holy Spirit will work in your heart, changing your heart. And you know what happened? Right? She repent. She got out of it. And I was so proud of her when she did it. You see, guys, how do we become a vessel of healing for others? You got to preach the truth and you got to live the truth. There is no sugarcoating it, there's no making it palatable for them to hear. It's not afraid of sounding offensive. The Bible says the gospel is offensive to those who are perishing, but it is salvation for those who are being saved. Preach the truth, live the truth. Some of you guys are thinking, well, PT, I've done that. I've done that. I, 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 am, I am as solid as it comes. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best, but I don't see it helping. I, don't, I, don't, I think I'm failing. I think I'm losing the people I'm talking to. I feel like they're further away than before. I feel like I'm not helping. I feel like the gospel needs to be somehow changed or needs to be twisted or, or, um, or, or, or molded in a way that's different because it's just not doing it now. And my answer to that is probably our second point. It's because you probably personally have not recognized the God of this age that's working against the people of this age, right? Second point, how do you help? How do you become a vessel of healing for others? You have to recognize the God of this age, the spirit of this age. Everyone say recognize. All right, look at verse three and four. This is what 
This is what uh, Paul is saying. Paul is saying, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm preaching the gospel. I, I, I'm laying it bare. I'm preaching it in its entirety. If they're not listening, if they cannot hear it, it's not because the gospel is messed up. It's because their eyes are veiled. It is because they're being blinded by the God of this age, by the voice of this culture, by the spirit of this generation. They're being veiled and they're listening to this voice instead of listening to the brightness, the beauty, and the wonders of the message of Jesus Christ. They cannot see it, they cannot hear it because they are blinded to the voice of this age, the God of this age, the spirit of this age, right? How do you become a vessel of healing? You need, to, you need to recognize the enemy. You need to recognize what is being in the midst of our culture today. You need to recognize the voice that is being spoken into this generation. You need to recognize that voice. You got to know the enemy, right? If you want to help someone, if you want to bring healing to someone, you got to know what's keeping them from hearing the message. You got to know what's keeping them from hearing the truth. The spirit of this age, the power that is driving the emotional, mental, and physical condition of this generation. All right? You got to recognize the God of this age. So what is the God of this age? What is the God of this age and what is, this, what is he doing to this generation? Okay? I'm about to go into a philosophical history lesson for you right now. Okay? Some of you guys are thinking, no. Right? I'm about to drop a philosophical history lesson for you. So fair warning, all you people with ADD, okay? I need you to focus right here because this is for you. Everyone at home, college, if you're a college person at home, press the like button so everyone knows because this section is for you, okay? I usually do not do history lessons within messages only because it's just too long. I do, I do this during Bible studies, right? But none of y'all show up to TGIF anyway, so here I am going to give this to you as it is. You got to know this, college youth. This is for everybody, but it's especially for you because you are in the midst of it. Right? You are a college person. You are in the midst of this. You are in the trenches of this, of the God of this age and the work that it's doing in this generation. You are in the midst of it. And you got to know, you got to know what's happening. You got to know the, where it came from so that you can deal with the situation. You got to know what's going on in your heart. Because a lot of us as believers find ourselves actually, whether we know it or not, entrenched also with the God of this age. Right? So I'm going to lay down some philosophical history lessons for you. I ain't making this stuff up. You can look it up afterwards. Okay, I had somebody who actually told me the other day, they thought I made up the stories up here on the pulpit, right? I was a little, actually, I was a little bit offended by that. I was like, what? Like, do you know what I'm doing up here? I'm preaching God's truth. I'm just, I'm just praying that I don't get struck down half the time, right? Like, making up stuff up in the pulpit. And then, you know, when, when she found out, like, one of the stories I told her, because, you know, I confirmed the story with her, and she's like, that was a true story. I was like, yes, it's a true story. What are you talking about? You can fact check this afterwards. I got all this information I'm about to give to you guys. But here's the thing. What I'm about to lay down for you is this. And if you follow along, I don't have my PowerPoint. I should have did the PowerPoint, but I didn't do the PowerPoint. If you follow along, you are going to recognize the God of this age. You're going to know the spirit that is being spoken into the mental, emotional, and physical condition of this generation. Let me tell you, it was 100 years in the making. It's been 100 years in the making 
to get to this moment right here, to this, to this age right here, to this generation right here. At home, focus. ADD, do your best, okay? Do your best, all right? Here we go. First thing you gotta know, you gotta know where this thing came from. The first philosophical point I wanna make is this concept called critical theory. I brought this up a while back, but let me bring it up again. It's the rage right now, it's critical theory. It's the rage in all the universities. It's part of the campaign trail. It's constantly on the nightly news, okay? Critical theory is pretty much like this. There's two, there's two um, theories back then. One is traditional theory. Traditional theory means um, figuring out how, how to build something, how to build something from nothing, how to build it up, okay? That's a hard thing to do, trying to create. It's like creating math. You ever ask the question, like, who made math? Like, how did they even make math? That's hard, right? right? Traditional theory is how to build something. Critical theory is how to criticize what's been built, right? That's easy. That's like when you watch a basketball game, right? And you're the critic and you're criticizing the players, you know, and you're eating your cheese, chili dog, and you're like yelling, you should have ran faster, right? And like, bro, bro, you were at home, right? In the comfort of your home, eating a chili dog, and you're criticizing someone who is in the championship game, who is stressed out of their mind, who's gone through the works and the ringers to get their team to this place, and you are, and you are halfway in no shape to be criticizing that they should be running faster. But it's easier to criticize than it is to actually build. You follow? Right? So critical theory is built on two things. It's built on the idea of deconstruction and reconstruction. I know you're thinking, what? Hang in there, okay? It's built on deconstruction, meaning you deconstruct the world. The world is wrong, therefore we need to dismantle everything made before us and then reconstruct it to create utopia. The idea of critical theory is deconstruct and reconstruct. Historically, let me break this down for you guys. Let me tell you where it came from. 1914, 1918, there was a huge war. 10,000 points, who knows what war it was? World War I, yes, Germany lost, okay? They were crushed economically and psychologically. The war killed 15% of their men. Okay, the Treaty of Versailles, because they know, blamed Germany for the war and demanded reparations, totaling about today's number 270 billion. Guess what it did? It bankrupted the nation. It bankrupted the country. Okay, it's 92 years to even pay it off. So, th so you have a nation of citizens who are what? Economically oppressed, dealing with the mass death of their youngest and their brightest. Right? You got people suffering, poverty-stricken. They felt they were being treated unjustly by wealth and, and because they had their wealth and their power stripped from them. This is the nation of Germany during this time. In 1923, in Germany, it was the institution of, uh, they, they created the Institute for Social Research, the Frankfurt School. This is the first funded Marxist think tank. Okay? And this is where critical theory came from. You guys follow me? Why am I telling you all this information? You gotta know where the God of this age came from. You gotta know where all of this culminated from, okay? Critical theory came from that think tank. It was founded by a bunch of Jewish academics, non-capitalists, who want justice and equality for people, for their suffering people in Germany. You guys follow? They're suffering, they're being oppressed. They did this think tank to come up with this theory to create equality by doing what? By deconstructing the government the gender, the family, religion, education, and reconstructing it all over again. They said, let's think of a new way to do government. Let's think of a new way to do family. Let's think of a new way to deal with gender. Let's think of a new way to deal with education. And they were so smart, this think tank. You know what they did? They, 
they, they put this information into the universities, okay? Because they knew that in the subculture of university, if it picks up, it's going to travel downstream into the culture of today, or the culture of the people. You deal with the university, you're going to get into the culture. And so they begin to teach this and begin to move it into the universities in Germany. And guess what? It appealed to mass numbers of people. Why? Because they were hurting. They were suffering. They were feeling the injustice, the poverty, oppression, and loss. And so they said, yes, this is it. Let's deconstruct and reconstruct. And then what do we get? We get 1933, Hitler voted chancellor of Germany. Nazi party came into power. Nazis didn't like the Jews, so kicked out the Frankfurt School. They left, right? They moved from, to Geneva, then to Paris, then to Columbia University in New York. That's how critical theory came to America, right? That's how it traveled to America. Then we got the Hitler became Fuhrer, 1939, 1945, World War II. So now here it is. The critical theory reconstructionists, they're in America, and they're trying to refine their theory, and they came up with these points. It looked like this. One, power. There are people in power who had, and there are people who did not have, those people who were oppressed. And it said those who had power, they created these structures and systems to privilege themselves against those who had no power. Sounds familiar, right? And then they realize there's a systemic oppression that's going on. See, these powers often created an invisible oppression for those who are privileged. Biasness, right? For example, men oppressing women. And so they begin to realize, I'm going to, the, the critique is, is this. We are going to look at every system, every system, and we're going to check out the flaws of every system, the problem of every institution. The problem of marriage, gender, family, government, religion. They would look at all these systems and they would see what? They would see actual problems of power, of systemic oppression. And as Christians, we know what that, that problem is, right? You got a bunch of imperfect people, and guess what they're going to do? They're going to build imperfect systems. That's called sin. That's called you doing your own thing apart from God, and you're going to build your own thing apart from God, and it's not going to be perfect. It can't be perfect. But they're thinking what? We're going to change the people and we're going to build a new system. And as believers, we know what? It don't matter if you change the people, you still have what? Imperfect people and they're going to be doing what? Building imperfect systems. Right? But they saw that and for them, the critical theory constructionists, what they did was they began to recognize justice. Justice means this. It means to dismantle oppressive ideas and structures like race, gender, marriage, family, education, and fight for the equality of outcomes, not equality of opportunities, right? We're going to deconstruct all of these things, dismantle all of them, and give it equally for all people. That's why you have uh, those who picked up uh, critical theory in their government. You have no private property ownership, and you got taxation of the rich. And then, who is the mediator between the power and the oppressed? Who becomes the mediator between those in power and those who are oppressed? It's the government. The government becomes the immediate, the government is going to be the one who is going to distribute all of this thing across the age. Does this sound familiar, right? This is critical theory started in 1923, and it laid the framework for the work of the God of this age. You guys following me? Some of you guys are thinking, man, 
PT, I lost you already. Hang in there. First thing you got to remember is just critical theory. It lays the foundation. Second thing, 1960s. Did I got to give you history? If I don't give you history, you're going to start repeating stuff you guys don't know, right? In 1960s, 1970, we have a new philosophy that came up that built off of critical theory called the postmodern age. They were the deconstructionists, okay? They were the deconstructionists of this age. Postmodern, pretty much all they did was this. We want to question everything. Everything is questionable, right? There is no truth. That's why we get the idea of relativism. There is no truth. There is no judge to administer truth. Truth is not objective. Truth is subjective. It's how you feel about truth. It's what's true for you. I'm glad that's your truth. That's not my truth. Truth is subjective based on how you feel. So the postmodern deconstructionists pretty much got rid of a moral lawgiver, got rid of moral standards, got rid of absolute truth, and all you're left with is how you feel about truth. And this is, and you see it today, you know how? When you watch YouTube clips of situations and it gets cut, it gets cut in such a way to do what? To appeal to your feelings and that becomes the truth regardless of whether the facts add up to it or regardless of whether there's reality to it or context behind it. You see the clip, you emotionally respond to the clip, that is your truth. Who cares about the actual truth? Who cares about the actual story? This is it, right? Emotion begins to be the driving factor of truth. The postmodern rejected the meta-narrative. You know what meta-narrative is? If you're in Pipeline, you know what this is, okay? It means that this, they rejected the idea of a grand story. There is no grand story where humanity fits into it, which means they reject what? They reject the Bible story. The Bible tells us there is a God, man and woman were created, they sinned against God, God sought to redeem them, and God seeks to glorify them, and there is there is joy coming, right? That is the storyline, and we find our little story inside this huge storyline. That's the meta-narrative. But postmodern says we reject the meta-narrative. Your story is what you make of it now. Your story is what you create of it at this moment. This moment is your story. Postmodern takes this idea, okay, because they, re because they have rejected truth, they begin to do this. They assume there is power and privilege all over. And they believe there is an abuse of every system and school of thought. Because you, you got to question everything. You got to question what people think about marriage. You got to start questioning what people think about gender. You, you got to start questioning about what people think about education. You got to start questioning about what people think of religion, of government. They start questioning all these things. Down comes the marriage. You don't need sex before marriage. You don't need sex in marriage. Sex can happen before marriage. Family structure? What is that? Right? Rebel against your parents if they don't let you live your narrative at this moment. Rebel against, you know, your children if they're trying to enforce a truth into your life. And we get the 60s and the 70s, which is the age of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? And moving forward. So we got the critical theory, we got your postmodern deconstruction, and then in the 1980s to 2010, and you're like, why? PT, I came for a message. I'm giving you the message. Hang in there, okay? You're going you're to get the oomph after you get the uh, okay? Wait for the oomph, okay? Here we go. The social justice reconstructionism came, in, uh, came, came, came alive. Because if you deconstruct everything, you're going to have to do what? Reconstruct something back, right? You break everything down, you got to reconstruct something back. And then comes the 80s to 2010s, which is most, most of you college guys were born, right? Social justice became Prevalent. It became prevalent where? In the universities. 
It became a major talking point and talking subject in the university. They got the critical theory that happened about 50, 60 years ago, and they used critical theory to give a vision for rebuilding the world. That's how you get curriculums like women's studies, transgender studies, queer studies, post-colonial studies, fat studies, Native American studies, black studies, right? That's where you get political correct speech code on campuses. That's where you begin to have um, the fusion of LGBTQ uh, cause with the civil rights cause. That's when you begin to have the gay pride parade and the gay marriage uh, fights, right? It is the social justice who takes the critical theory and they begin to reconstruct the world in the universities, which now we begin to see what? Trickle down into our culture. You guys getting me? Okay. And here we are today. We made it. We got here. Okay. The God of this age. The God of this age. A hundred years in the making. The God of this age. The culture of being woke. Right? The whole culture of being woke. The atheist calls this culture the new secular religion of this age. Okay? The God of this age is using everything that has been passed down piece by piece, slowly meandering for a hundred years into this moment where it sets up this binary division between a counterfeit God and the God of the Bible. A counterfeit religion, Jesus. It begins to create this separation diametrically opposing our God. Culture of woke is what? You were once asleep, but now you are awake. You were once blind, but now you see. Familiar? It is a counterfeit to our faith. It is a counterfeit to Jesus. It's a way of interpreting reality. The wokeness, what they did with the woke culture, what they did was they pulled all the social justice scholarship, women's studies, gender studies, uh, black studies, religious studies, and they put it under critical theory. Critical theory becomes the new meta-narrative of this age. It becomes the new reality of how you see the world nowadays. And so we have this God of this age who uses as re the secular religion count, uh, being counterfeit to the God of the Bible. I know you guys are thinking, I feel like you're stretching this idea of religion. Like, it's not really religion. It's a movement. PT is not religion. It is, a, it is a, it's, it's a cultural drive. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. They have a trinity. They have a concept of a trinity. This culture, the secular religion is built off of three things. Postmodern deconstruction, critical theory reconstruction, social justice activism. It's built off of this trinity. They have, a, they have their Bible, as opposed to us as well, right? Their Bible is the social justice studies. Social justice, if you would speak against the studies, if you would speak against the information, you're out of bounds. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know the truth. Go read a book. You don't, you don't know how many times this past six months I've been told to go read a book, right? That's all I do in my whole life is read books, right? But they tell you, go read a book, PT. You don't know because you don't know the truth. Sounds familiar? They have a concept of original sin. You are born unrighteous. If you're a man, you're inherently sexist. If you are heterosexual, you are inherently homophobic. If you are white, you are inherently racist. If you're a Christian, you were born to be a bigot and a narrow-minded person. There's nothing you can do about it. That's how you were born. 
right? That's the original sin. Sorry, Evan, right? You have to get converted. You have to be saved. They have their concept of demons. There's an invisible, unseen force of what? Biasness and privilege. There's no laws. There's no policies that you can point to. But there's an unseen force of biasness and privilege that has saturated all of the systems of our age. They have spiritual warfare. Either you're with us or you're against us. Either you're for us or you're against us. You see this? It's very diametrically, it's a reflection, right? They have a, they have a concept of victim. I am the victim of your sin. I am the victim of what you created. I am the victim of your problems. Not Jesus is the victim of our sins. We place ourselves as God now, and then your sins becomes, makes me the victim. There's a concept of righteousness. The more oppressed you are, the more you suffer, the more righteous you are. That's why we see the, the concept of intersectionality. The more oppressive groups you belong to, the more righteous you become. And if you're righteous, you can't sin, right? If, 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 you, are, if you belong to more groups that are oppressed, if you, for example, if you are a woman, a black woman, a gay black woman, a gay black Muslim woman, right? You are part of four oppressed groups. Therefore, you are more righteous than a male, white, heterosexual Christian. And therefore, because you are righteous, you cannot sin. I saw the other day on the news. If you, if, you, if you ever want to get mad, watch the news, okay? If you want to get mad, watch the news. It will give you the most stress. I saw on the news, dude runs into a liquor store, steals stuff, runs out. I don't know how the, the news reporter caught up to him. Called up to him and said, hey, why did you steal from the liquor store, right? He said, isn't that wrong? His response was, it's not stealing, it's reparation. I've been oppressed. I'm a victim of society. I am getting what is mine. No, bro, you just sinned. You stealed, right? But if you find yourself righteous, if you found yourself righteous, if you think that you are oppressed and therefore makes you righteous, you don't think you're a sinner. There's a concept of repentance, right? Meaning this, it's not that you are a sinner and you need to repent to God, but rather you are God and people need to repent to you for offending you. They need to own what they said to you. They need to apologize for what they said to you. They need to go on their social media and they need to make it public that they have wronged you. There's a concept of heretics. If you disagree with our position, you are a sexist, you are a racist, you're a homophobic, and therefore you are shunned. It's a concept of born again. You get woke. You were once asleep, you didn't realize all of this thing was happening, and then your eyes were open, right, by the preaching of the social justice warriors, and they opened your eyes, now you see it everywhere. You were once blind, but now you see. You've been woke. You've been born again. There's a concept of evangelists, activists taking onto the streets, preaching the message. There's a concept of justice. In the court of public opinion, we judge you on everything you have said, tweeted, and done on Instagram for however many years back we can find it for, right? Not that God looks into your sins, your secret sins. We look into your sins through social media. There's a concept of crucifixion, cancel culture. You're crucified, your reputation is over, your career is over, we're going to cancel your business, we will show up at your house and make your life miserable. There is a concept of kingdom. We have, we have the wealth, we have the power, therefore we alone will know how to distribute this fairly for everybody else. That's the kingdom we're trying to build. 
There's a concept of judgment. We will judge everyone except ourselves and everything except our group. There's a concept of heaven. Heaven is not heaven because there is no God. There is no Bible narrative. There is none of that. Heaven is heaven on earth. We will make utopia here. We will bring unity. We will bring peace. We will bring life to this place. There's a concept of hell. If you don't convert, your life will be hell. If you don't convert, we will burn your world down in flames. The God of this age with the religion teaches the unbelievers of this age to do what? To sit in judgment, to render justice, to claim their own righteousness. This is the God of this age. You wonder why when I preach the gospel PT, no one is listening. When I preach the gospel in its entirety, it does not speak. Because one thing is you probably don't know the voice that's speaking into the generation of the people you're talking to. You probably don't realize all of the stuff that has happened for a hundred years speaking slowly, slowly, slowly into the hearts of people. That's why college, I worry the most about you. I love you the most. I mean, I love everybody. I love you guys a lot in my heart right now because, because I know that the fight is hardest against you, right? In short, the God of this age sets itself up diametrically opposed against God most high with a religion that is counterfeit to Jesus. You guys get me? The God of this age, whether you realize it or not, is creating a religious form that is counterfeit to the God of the Bible, to the one true God, to the one most high. So what am I saying to you guys? There's a choice. It's binary. I know you hate that word, right? All you woke ones out there, right? It's binary. It's either you are for Jesus or you are for this. Jesus is very clear. Either you are for the kingdom of God or you are for the kingdom of Satan. There is no middle ground. There is no halfway in between. You will choose Jesus or choose this. Choose which faith you put your heart in. Choose which one you truly believe is going to bring life. PT, that's not fair. Why are you making me choose, right? Both are seeking justice. Is that true? Yes, they are. Both are seeking judgment. Both brings judgment. True. Both tells you righteousness. Oh, who is righteous? Right. But only one side would die for the other side. Do you hear that? I want to say that one more time. Both religion sets itself up. Both faith, but only one dies for the other. Choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. He is the only one worthy of your allegiance. He is the only one worthy of your worship. Choose Jesus. That brings me to my third point. Right? How do you become a vessel to bring forth healing? You bring them to Jesus. Everybody home say bring. You bring them to Jesus. Look at verse 5 to 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul is saying, this is not about me. I'm not making this about me. It's about Jesus. It's not about, about my ability to speak. It's not about my doctrine. It's about God's kingdom. It's about God's word. It's about God's will. Paul is saying, well, I'm just an errand boy for Jesus. I'm just a mailman. He wrote it. 
Jesus changed my life. He opened up my eyes. He showed me the real world. And all I have to offer is Jesus, not something made by man. How do you become vessels that bring forth healing? You bring them to Jesus. I know some of you guys at home are thinking this PT. By, by nitpicking all of these things, by, by, by you talking about this narrative like this, it sounds like you're, you're neglecting the bigger picture. You're neglecting the bigger movement that's going on. You're neglecting the, 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 the struggle that's out there. I'm not neglecting that. I am not neglecting that. Right? I'm not missing the bigger movement. The thing I'm asking you to realize is this. Whatever the movement represents, it's either driven by the God of this age or Jesus. Whatever that, am I saying that, that, am I saying that the movement has no truth? Of course it has truth. But the God of the age does what the truth? He twists the truth. The God of this age distorts the truth. He did it in the Garden of Eden. You think he's not going to do it again? He takes something about struggle. He takes something about injustice. He takes something about unfairness. And he, what does he do? He twists the truth and he builds a whole religion out of it. Is it wrong for judgment to be administered? No, it's not wrong for judgment to be administered. Is it wrong to seek justice and fight for injustice? Of course it's not wrong. Is it wrong to live righteously? No, it's not wrong. But do it in Jesus. Do it with Jesus. Do it with Jesus, not with the woke secular religion of this age. Do it with Jesus. And you think, why? Well, I'm about to lay down the Holy Spirit right here. You guys ready? Do, why? why? Why do it with Jesus? Because, check this out. When you begin to seek judgment on someone in front of your screen, on your little post, in your little messenger box, when you're about to lay down your personal judgment against another person, if you do it with Jesus, you are brought to repentance at that moment. Do you know why? Because at that very moment, when you're about to lay judgment on your fellow man, you remember, you remember that God, Jesus Christ, died for all men. You are a sinner saved by grace. You are a sinner saved by grace. How dare you? Who do you think you are? How arrogant are you to believe that for a moment you are somehow better than your fellow man and that you and your little throne can lay judgment on another person? You cannot do that because if you do it with Jesus, you recognize repentance comes. When you do it with Jesus, when you begin to seek justice, before you pour out your wrath, before you pour out your anger, your pride, before you begin to say your words of hate and fire, when you begin to seek justice, you, you stop and you realize what? You realize that Jesus himself faced the most injustice of all. The innocent one who faced the wrath of God himself as a criminal for you. He has done nothing wrong. The most injustice was upon Jesus. And how did he administer justice? How did he administer justice? Did he burn down the world? Did he reach out in wrath and anger? No, he did it by love and sacrifice. Justice was done by love and sacrifice. Not by hate, not by bullying, not by wrath, not by cancel. And you begin to seek righteousness. When you begin to puff yourself up, I'm righteous. I know. I'm woke. I understand. I get the picture. You're not. You haven't read enough books, PT. The moment you stand arrogantly, think about, think, the moment you stand arrogantly, think about how stupid, and you think about how stupid someone else is, 
Remember, there's only one righteous. And you're not righteous because you're awesome. You're righteous because he gave you his righteousness. You're not good because somehow you earned it. Somehow you became alive and smart. In Jesus, he gave you a righteousness that you could not have. He gave you the ability to stand before a holy God, which you could not have done. He gave you his righteousness, so you have nothing to boast about. You are only in humility. So how dare you when you begin to puff yourself up against your fellow man, thinking that somehow you are more righteous than they are. You see, church, I want to fight for justice. I want to fight for righteousness. But I do it in Jesus. I do it with Jesus. I'm going to vote this November. But I'm not going to put my hope in either man. I put my hope in Jesus working through the hearts of men. So whoever wins this election, let me tell you what. I'm going to pray for that president. Whoever wins this election, I'm going to pray for that president because my hope is not what law is passed by man. My hope is not what man does as a nation. My hope is in the power of Jesus working through the hearts of men. Regardless of whether the vaccine comes today or next year, I'm going to preach the gospel and love my neighbors. I refuse to be paralyzed in fear because death is coming sooner or later. Either you die this week, this month, or you die in 60 years, but death is coming sooner or later. The real question is, who is on the other side? Who do you know on the other side? And if I say I love my fellow man, if I say I want justice for my fellow man, if I say I want righteousness for my fellow man, then the only thing that is of utmost importance is that I preach Jesus to my fellow man. Fear, fear is what gives power to the God of this age, Christians, brothers, sisters. Fear is what destroys the believer's power. Fear is what lifts up the voice of this age fighting. But courage, courage makes it run. When the people of God, with the message of God and Jesus Christ, you go you preach this message, it runs. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of salvation for all who believes. I will not let fear stop me from preaching it. I will not let the idea of being canceled, being corrected, stop me from preaching Jesus Christ. I will not let fear win. This God of this age will not have victory here in this place. Church, you got to be strong. You got to stand up with courage. You got to preach the name that is above every name. That in the end of it all, it's not about how woke you are, it's whether who you know. Do you know Jesus? Are you preaching Jesus? Are you talking about Jesus? Are you so scared about even mentioning his name to your neighbors? The one who can save. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Straight people need Jesus, gay people need Jesus. Republicans need Jesus, Democrats need Jesus, right? Sick people need Jesus, healing people, uh, healthy people need Jesus, poor people need Jesus, rich people need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. Go and be a vessel of healing. Preach the truth, live the truth. Know the God of this age. Bring them to Jesus. Let's pray.